Thank you. Do you ever notice that in old movies, the credits are really short? They're usually at the beginning, and they just focus on the leading actors, maybe the scriptwriter and whoever wrote the score. Movies nowadays aren't like that, are they? The credits at the end go on and on. It's not just the actors, it's everyone who had anything at all to do with the production. The caterer, the assistant to the stars, the assistants to the assistants to the stars. Sometimes it feels like it's longer than the movie itself, but you stick around in case there's some little Ferris Bueller scene at the end, right? If you were in a generous mood, you would say that the philosophy behind that was quite deep, that there is, what it's really saying is that there is no one who is purely incidental to the movie. Each one is important and has his own essential role. Today we begin a collection of sermons focused on those with those incidental roles, or the unknowns in the Bible. They're not the stars, they're not the patriarchs, they're not Queen Esther, one of the apostles, but lo and behold, there they are in the credits, significant enough that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were named in the Bible story. Today, we open this collection of unknowns with someone named Bezalel, and you can go to the next slide, um, Tom. Now, who was Bezalel? Do you know? Quick multiple choice. I'll give you three three options. Bezalel was a servant of King Josiah. Bezalel was the artisan in charge of the tabernacle. Bezalel was one of Job's beautiful daughters. You got that? I'm going to ask for your vote. A servant of Josiah, artisan of the tabernacle, or one of Job's beautiful daughters. Vote one, servant. Who, who votes for that? One, we got one. Uh, artisan of the tabernacle. That's pretty popular, okay? And Job's beautiful daughters, one of Job's beautiful daughters, about there. I think as a congregation, we just snuck in a win. Uh, Bezalel was the artisan in charge of the tabernacle. There it is. So let's read about Bezalel from Exodus chapter 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, saying, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahisamech of the tribe of Dan, to help him. I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent. The table, its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. So before we begin, let's quickly pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we hear your word this morning. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So let's begin with some background. The passage we just read is from Exodus, that great book that tells the amazing story of Moses, his birth in frightening political times for Israelites in Egypt, his chance adoption into Pharaoh's household and how the Lord called him to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. It's an amazing story and it follows the amazing stories of Genesis. Adam and Eve, Noah, Noah is near to our hearts this weekend (laughs) because of the flooding, Isaac, Jacob, but one key thing that begins to happen in Exodus and that's new in the Bible story so far is that God begins to codify the law and the expectations of the covenant, beginning, of course, with the Ten Commandments in in chapter 20. So you see up on the slide there right now, up until now, there has been no written law until Moses gets the law on Mount Sinai. God has made this amazing covenant with Abraham, continuing on through the patriarchs, and he has been intimately involved in leading his people. But frankly, the way he has done this so far has been pretty murky and mysterious. Visits from angels, dreams and visions, mystical sacrifice, casting stones, strange ceremonies. In Exodus, that begins to change. This is the first codification of the nature of God's relationship with his people, how they are to worship God, this vertical relationship of worship, and how they are to interact with each other, this horizontal or social relationship. And as he does this, more and more of the character of God is revealed. We see what God values and what is good by what he commands. God has been revealing himself through the mysteries of the covenant and through the stories and interactions with the patriarchs. And God's interactions, not, that's not going to change, that's for sure. But now he will also begin to reveal himself through the written moral law. And he will also reveal himself and meet with them in a specific place of worship, the tabernacle. So God gives the law, Ten Commandments, chapter 20. And once this great charter is given, God gives more specific laws. In essence, he describes some of the implications of the Ten Commandments. If you're supposed to treat people well, well, how, how does that work in a practical situation? And chapters 21 to 23 do that. And for things like property disputes or bribes or how to treat strangers. And immediately following that in Exodus, the people confirm or reaffirm the covenant, chapter 24. And then for five chapters, he lays out a detailed description of the tabernacle and its furnishings and the priestly garments. No more altars in lonely deserts with stones that just happen to be lying about. God is giving detailed and specific instruction. He is calling them to build a place of meeting, not just with each other as they come together. It's not just a a town hall place to get together, but it's a place of meeting God himself. And it is lavish and beautiful and extravagant. The Ark of the Covenant is to be golden. The priestly garments and sacramental vessels are covered in jewels and intricate designs. What has been murky and mysterious is to be given form and beauty. Israel is forbidden to represent the ineffable God in images and idols, but the tabernacle will absolutely be given form, and very specifically so. And how is all this to to occur? That's where Bezalel comes in. 
The scripture says, And I have filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving work, wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. He is to be the one in charge of all of this. Moses received the instruction, but it is Bezalel who will see them to completion, he and the people who will report to him. Because it appears that <laughs> Bezalel is an artist, but he's also a good manager. And that in, in itself is almost miraculous, isn't it, for those of you who know people with artistic temperaments. But I digress. It's not always an overlapping skill set. Anyway, what do we learn from Bezalel? first thing we learn is that the creative arts reflect the character of God. Do you know that Bezalel is apparently the first person in scripture to be described as full of the Spirit of God? Not Abraham, who received the covenant, or Moses, who met with God on Mount Sinai. Not Aaron, the priest, nor Miriam, who danced in praise to God when they were rescued from Egypt but Bezalel, an artist, a craftsman. And this is fitting because one of the first things we find out about God himself, very first verse, the very first chapter of Genesis, is that he creates. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And so Bezalel's work as a creative artist reflects something about God himself, and also something of what it means to be human and made in the image of God. As far as I know, no other creature makes things just because they're beautiful or adds design just because they want to. There are lots of things that animals make that are sometimes even amazing feats of engineering, like a beaver dam, but only humans seek to adorn even the utilitarian objects of our lives. As far as I know, no beaver has decided to spruce up the lodge with a flower or two. When you take delight in a pretty pattern on a dish, or when you see a child adding designs with sticks, drawing on a mud pie, you are seeing something of what it means to be made in the image of a creative and beautiful God. It is a human inclination to make things beautiful even if we're not very good at it. Archaeologists sometimes find things that they wonder, hmm, is this just a pointy stone or was it a tool? Was it made by a human? But if they find something with a design or a pattern on it, they don't have to wonder. Of course it marks that artifact as human. And whoever made this shard of pottery, however many millennia ago, that person was one of us, made in the image of God, with God's spirit within. We are both kin to Bezalel. The second thing we learn is that work can be an act of worship. Turning our hands and our hearts to that which God has called us can be an act of worship, whether or not it is officially a spiritual thing to act. Being a goldsmith, like Bezalel, is not a specifically religious job like a priest, but his work as a craftsman ended up as an offering to God. Our work can also be an act of worship if done with integrity and diligence. 
This theme is echoed throughout scripture. The book of Proverbs is full of practical advice about avoiding sloth, being wise in our work. And of course, we remember Paul's instruction in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. We may not be building a physical tabernacle or sewing priestly garments, but our work matters to God and can be something that honors him. When I think of Bezalel, I also find it helpful to remember that he wouldn't have become the chief artisan out of the blue. No doubt Bezalel had spent years learning his trade and that he had crafted many more ordinary things for much more prosaic uses before this commission to adorn the tabernacle. But I like to think that he was chosen by God because he had done those more common things with the same diligence he was going to be asked to apply to the crafting of the sacramental and holy things. Our work may sometimes be tedious and getting good at something requires hard work that no one notices or rewards at the time. But the small things done daily and faithfully prepare us for those tasks and larger responsibilities that God may bring our way and that will give us joy and may bring us honor. Someday we too may be invited to craft a tabernacle. And even if we are not asked to build a tabernacle of precious stones and intricate gold, the Holy Spirit will be using our daily faithfulness to build a holy tabernacle in our hearts through our cumulative acts of obedience. Each time we bend our will to his in our work, even in small things like showing up on time, like refusing to be distracted by website clickbait, consider this small task as an offering to God and consider it as something that God, our artist craftsman, will use as one small chip and carving to mold and carve us into something beautiful. As Bezalel crafted the adornment in the tabernacle, so God can use his spirit to make a tabernacle in our hearts, a holy place where he can dwell. From this story of Bezalel, we also learn that beauty reflects the character of God. There is a classical tradition that speaks of something called the transcendental virtues, truth, beauty, and goodness so-called because they reflect the transcendent character of God. He is the ultimate personification of the true, the beautiful, and the good. Since they are the essence of his being, the extent that our work and philosophy and art reflect this, they are likely to be enduring and excellent. While I was thinking about this, I found online an excerpt from a keynote address about Christian art. It was delivered by a woman named Kirsten Appleyard, who is apparently a curator at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa. In her address, uh, in reference to a certain Christian painter, she said of him that he believed that and all aspects of his art that are true, good, and beautiful are derivative of their divine transcendent counterparts, thereby granting us a glimpse of the one who is all truth, goodness, and beauty. In Exodus, we see all three of these. God reveals the truth about himself in the law, and the law gives direction about how to interact with one another, and so we see his goodness 
in practical ways. And then in the lavish description of the tabernacle and its furnishings, we see that God is beautiful. And he prescribes how the Israelites can put that into practical terms too. He tells them how to make the tabernacle the place to approach the Lord in worship. And in the outer courts where all the people gather, things are finely crafted. This is no ordinary tent. But as you move closer and closer to the center, there are increasing descriptions of gold and precious stones culminating at the center of worship, the Ark of the Covenant, which holds the tablets of the law, made of gold and carved with intricate designs of cherubim, beauty at the center of worship, along with the law. The church tradition that nurtured my faith downplayed or was maybe even suspicious of beautiful things in church. Some churches I worshipped in were pretty plain, school multi-purpose rooms and such. And I think sometimes that I was almost proud of the plainness. After all, the church was not a building, we were the church. We didn't need images or things to look at because the nature of God was revealed in our right doctrine, our right thoughts about him what scripture said about him. In that tradition of the three transcendent values, the true, the beautiful, the good, the one we valued most was truth. Images and icons, that would be distraction, not instruction. Or maybe others are from a tradition that focused primarily on right behavior and good and charitable deeds. And anything that took away from that value was also suspicious. So, for instance, it might be considered wasteful to spend scarce resources on decoration and adornment. Didn't we have better things to do with our time? Could that money not have been spent on the poor? We hear that criticism of the church in our times, don't we? And that goes all the way back to Judas' disdain for the woman who poured out her perfume at the feet of Jesus, doesn't it? So it's not new. Some would say lavish things in a church are wasteful because for them, the most important of the transcendent values is goodness. And let's be clear, there is lots about those perspe perspectives. That's exactly right. God is truth, and he does not dwell in buildings made of hands. And wherever two or three are gathered, however spare or simple, he is in the midst of them. And God is good, and without good works, our faith is dead, and we are liars. And there is that chilling teaching of Jesus that reminds us that we are at risk of hearing, depart from me, I never knew you, if we neglect the poor, if we neglect goodness. So it wasn't because Jesus didn't care for the poor that he rebuked Judas. But we do well to remember that God is also beautiful, and it is right to honor him with beautiful things because it shows that we understand that he is worthy of that sacrifice of our creative gifts and resources. He is worthy of extravagance in worship. And finally, beauty can be used by God to draw our attention to him. Listen to this quote from a French philosopher, Etienne Gilson, again taken from Kirsten Appleyard's keynote address. The beautiful is neither the true nor the good. It can substitute for neither one. 
but both need it in order to win access to the heart of men. For truth and goodness to touch us at our core, we often need beauty to be the gateway. We need our emotions and our spirits touched by that as a window into truth and goodness. In our culture today, certainly our words often fall flat, and even our deeds can be treated with suspicion. But beauty can still move and touch us and call us to the transcendent. Our world today is often simply ugly. But in Dostoevsky's words, beauty will save the world. Not because truth and goodness are not important, far from it. They also reflect the essence of God. But beauty is so often the key to the human heart. Our culture, for the most part, has no interest in things the church has to say. But throughout the world, we are still moved by cathedrals, by music, by art. When God was, given instruct, was giving instructions about the adornment of the tabernacle, it was not because he needed to see gold and jewels, but because we needed to see them. In his kindness, he gave us a way through, through our senses, through our emotions, through our human spirit to access even deeper truths about him. Somehow in the history of Elam, we ended up with a church that is beautiful, especially our stained glass windows. When I come in on Sunday morning, they draw my attention upwards and, and lightwards. I walk in here, and the room feels different from the multipurpose room, doesn't it? The room itself begins to touch us, begins to teach us. It gives us a clue about what we are doing here in a way that wouldn't quite be the same if we were meeting in a gym. Could we still meet there and worship God? Absolutely. But we are whole creatures, body, mind, and spirit. And while we worship God anywhere and everywhere, it's a bit more work, isn't it, to keep your attention focused on the service in a multi-purpose room? And I don't know about you, but I'll take all the help I can get to keep my attention on God because I sure find it easy to be distracted. Moses came down from the mountain with the truth of God's character and expectation, and the expansion of the law gave explanations and insight into God's goodness. But the work of the tabernacle was a reflection of God's beauty and was a tool God used to keep Israel's attention on worship above all else. At the end of the day, worship, whether in a tabernacle or church or in our daily living, is about attention. What is the primary focus of our attention? While preparing this, I recalled a story Malcolm Muggeridge told about Mother Teresa in his book, Something Beautiful for God. He was enormously impressed with her ministry and with her. And he made a gift. He gave a gift to the missionaries of charity, some money, because funds were certainly always needed. And he assumed that this gift would be used for food or medicine, some, something to directly care for the poor. And he was surprised when she wrote back to thank him and informed him that she had purchased a chalice for the worship of God. 
She said that she had done that, so he would be daily on the altar, close to the body of Christ. Lavish and extravagant? Perhaps, yes. A waste? Dare we accuse Mother Teresa, of all people, of neglecting the poor in this decision? No. I believe that this showed that she, saint that she was, understood the priority of our, directing our attention to first things, the worship of God. And when we do that, the other things, care for the poor, falling in love with right doctrine, then they will find their rightful place in, in our lives when we are directed towards the worship of God. Exquisite objects and art, beauty, are a tool to help us do that, to move people to pay attention to God, to worship him, and then from there to entice us to the true and the good. This is the work of Bezalel. This is the work of the church. <laughs>